Hey, everybody. This is episode 17 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I'm Mara Thomas. That's right, Soapboxers. For this episode, we've turned the tables, and I will be interviewing Tamara Kissane. Tamara is a Triangle-based theater maker, a playwright, actor, devised theater collaborator, and head honcho here at Artist Soapbox, Tamara, in my humble opinion, is officially on her way to becoming a media mogul. Today, we will primarily focus on Tamara's efforts as a playwright, specifically the upcoming world premiere of her adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's The Master Builder. Master Builder is produced by Little Green Pig Theatrical Concern and opens January 18th. Please see the show notes for ticket information. Hi, Tamara. Hi, Mara. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Thank you. How does it feel to be on that side of the table? Strange. There's a little bit of relief and also just a little bit of nervousness. Well, I'm excited, though, and I'm grateful for you doing this. Well, I'm excited as well. <laughs> my debut on, you know, as an interviewer. Oh, my gosh. What could happen? <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the upcoming play Master Builder, which uh, has its world premiere mm-hmm. on January 18th. And this is with Little Green Pig Theatrical Concern. Mm-hmm. It will be out at Mystery Brewing in Hillsboro. So, Tamara, you have adapted two classic plays for Little Green Pig. The New Colossus, which was an adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull, and that was in uh, 2016, and now uh, Ibsen's Master Builder. How do you approach adapting a classic play? Well, for Master Builder, I started working on that shortly after my youngest child was born. So that was about two and a half years ago. I started feeling this itch to work on the next project because I didn't know how long it would take me to finish something else. I knew I wanted to get started right away. And I also was having a little bit of an identity crisis after having my my second child, thinking that maybe I would be moving so far away from art making that it wouldn't be a part of my life anymore uh, because my attention would be so diverted that I wouldn't have any to spare and I wouldn't have any time to work on artistic projects. So I was feeling a lot of worry around that. And I also had weird weird amounts of discretionary time in the middle of the night, um, throughout the day when he was sleeping or I was feeding him. And so I wanted something to occupy my mind during that time. So I emailed Jaybird Oberski saying I, I was ready to start a play. Did he have any suggestions for other adaptations that I could do after the new Colossus. And he asked me what I wanted to focus on for this piece. At that point, I thought I wanted to write something about legacy. And that had a lot to do with the fact that I was now had two small children. And I was thinking a lot about what am I leaving behind um, as an artist and as a person on this planet. So he sent me a list of plays that he thought might fill the legacy uh, theme. I started working through those and I got hooked on Master Builder. I think I started watching a movie that maybe was made in the 1960s and 
I will remember sitting on a mattress on the floor in my son's room and I was breastfeeding him in the middle of the night watching bits of this movie. It was like three o'clock in the morning and then it was five o'clock in the morning. And I was really captivated by the story and the characters. I thought it was so bizarre and interesting that I decided to get various translations from the library and just really started immersing myself in that world. I read some critical reviews of plays that had been produced of Ibsen's work and basically just tried to figure out what it was about this play that interested me and also what it was about the play that interested other people enough to produce it and maybe what Ibsen was trying to get at and sort of trying to shake out um, the themes that resonated with me and how malleable I thought the piece was. So once I did that, then I basically just started free writing whatever came into my mind based on my memories of the play and kind of what stuck with me. So I, I started vomiting out just whatever was in there. And then there was a period of time when I actually had all of those various translations and adaptations with me on the couch and I would work through them and type into my Google Doc the the pieces that Ibsen was weaving together. So I used them kind of as reference documents trying to figure out how he made the play and what some of the threads were that held it together. And then once I did that, I put all those away and left them away. So in order to prepare for this interview, I actually had to go back and reread a synopsis of Ibsen's Master Builder and refamiliarize myself with the names of the characters because at a certain point, I just put all of that stuff away and worked solely on the draft that I had written and just kept revising. Why this play? Why did, why out of, out of all the plays on the list, was this the one that stuck with you? What was it about it? And, you know, I can say that I read your version, then I read one translation of Ibsen's and then read yours again. And <laughs> they're wildly different in many respects. And also when I read Ibsen's version, I was like, man, will this guy ever stop talking? Like, <laughs> I feel like he even says at one point, will you just sit there while I talk? Yes. And yes. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I'm curious, what what about it really piqued your interest? It was very odd. And I thought the characters were very strange. I believe that in 1893, when the play was first produced, it wasn't very well received by critics and by audiences because they didn't understand what it was. I was intrigued by that because I wanted to figure that out for myself. As I said, I initially thought I was writing about this idea of legacy, but as I wrote into the story, I realized that I was writing more about what it means to make a home for ourselves, build a safe space for ourselves or build that space for other people. And that was kind of what captured my attention at that time personally and as a theme in the play. And because the main character is an architect, it just lends itself to telling that story. What did not interest me about Ibsen's piece was the gender dynamics and what I read as a rather cliched story about a middle-aged man 
who's infatuated with this very young girl and she is kind of this weird mixture of a temptress but an innocent young thing and brings down his demise and I just that part of the story I found to be pretty beat and uninteresting so the way that I got myself excited about playing with that was to flip those genders and play with the dynamics there and see if I could make what seemed to be a pretty traditional storyline, see if I could make that into something contemporary. And the only way that I was interested in doing that was to subversively play with it with this with this gender flip-flop. In thinking about the gender swapping, you know, because the New Colossus didn't have any gender swapping, and this one, almost all of the characters are swapped. Mm -hmm. One of the notes that in the Little Green Pig blurb about the play is that it's about female ambition Mm -hmm. and questions how far women are expected to rise. Um, I'm wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about that. And do you see the main character, you know, from Ibsen's version versus your version, do you think that it is about Sully's ambition For the new Colossus, which was the adaptation of The Seagull, I was primarily interested in the women talking to one another, which they don't do in the original. And so I worked with that, and I actually wish that I had done that more. A friend of mine, after seeing the show, said, well, why don't you have a scene with Irina and Nina talking together because they're the same person Mm -hmm. at different stages of life. And then I wanted to kick myself and think, oh, why didn't I do that? (laughs) But but that's what I was really interested in doing with The New Colossus. And also, to be honest, with with The Seagull, I have a lot of affection for that piece, you know, even from college days. And so I love those characters. I wanted to preserve them for the most part intact. I also thought that The Seagull read as a very contemporary story, the things that the characters were wrestling with, even though it's such an old play, felt very fresh to me in a way that Master Builder didn't feel. And so I didn't feel like I needed to play as much with swapping the gender around. And for Master Builder, I really thought that in order to bring it into 2017, that was the, that's what I needed to do. Once the genders are swapped, do you see it becoming a story about Sully's ambition? Mm. And was that a word that entered your mind when it was in Ibsen's version? Do you think of soulness as being ambitious? I do. I think that I think that one reading, especially of the original, is could be about the danger of ambition, about rising higher than you should. The original, I think, has some allusions to seeing oneself as God and rising above your station and then taking a fall. In the original, Solness develops a fear of heights. And so that is why it's so extraordinary that Hilda gets him on the roof. I can definitely see how people would read my version of Master Builder and think it's a play about ambition. I didn't have that word in my mind when I was writing it. In my mind, the play is about the tension between our desire to take flight and put down roots. And some people might characterize that as 
ambition or lack of ambition if you lean too hard in one of those directions, perhaps. I think overall, though, it's a reaction to the way she reaches, and it's more about other people's reactions to her work than about her ambition. Basically, when I started writing Master Builder, and I first sat down, I would take a character, Sully, for example, who I knew was going to be played by a woman, and I would pretend like she was a man. So I would write down the words that I thought a man could say or might say. And the same thing with Hildy. I knew that Hildy was going to be played by a young man, but I would pretend like it was a young girl in her early 20s and write down whatever I thought could come out of that girl's mouth. That freed up the way that I could build those characters. It kind of actually pushed my imagination a little bit because, you know, I am... I've been raised in this culture of women say certain things certain ways, men say certain things certain ways. You can't get away with crossing that. And so I needed to push myself beyond my own upbringing. Eventually, I stopped doing that because I felt like the characters were well-defined enough that I could just think, all right, what does Sully say? What does Hildy say? The character was the character and what came out of that character's mouth was consistent with who they were. So it became less and less about the gender of these people and more and more about their personalities and who they were um, in that world. Kevin Ewart, who's the director, has mentioned that he would only feel comfortable directing this piece if the main character was a woman because he wouldn't feel comfortable putting a man up saying these things and doing these things as a man in this current climate. Um, because Sully really pushes the appropriateness of certain conduct in the workplace. I think that's a really interesting thing to examine. I mean, what can she get away with because she's a woman is a question that we don't often ask ask ourselves because we don't usually get to ask that question. Um, that's That's not a place that women find themselves in very often in this way. And on that note, Sully is very blunt mm-hmm. and you know as you've said you know questionably appropriate <laughs> many many times and very demanding mm-hmm. not very likable you know you could read Sully as not a very likable character mm-hmm. and for me you know in in my experience with writing it's hard sometimes to get into the head of somebody who is seemingly a lot unlike you mm-hmm. Um, what, for me, I had a hard time writing a character who was really confident. I'm like, God, what would this really confident person say? Because <laughs> that's, that's not me. <laughs> I have no clue. What's it like for you to write a character like Sully, who is just so no-nonsense and so blunt? This question is hilarious to me because I love this character. I had no problem writing her at all. One of my favorite things about the character of Sully is that she is likable. One of the questions that we hopefully ask ourselves as as audience members is why we are seduced by her charisma, by the qualities she has of getting things done, of not taking any shit, of saying what she thinks, of being of having a lot of fun, of taking great joy in her work, 
of absorbing all of these people and she's like a cyclone and people orbit around her. And so there's a lot of mag- magnetism in her and she's having so much fun that people allow her to do things that they might not allow other people to do. It's She's a rock star mm-hmm. in this world and people allow rock stars to get away with a whole lot of stuff because they're rock stars and because we want to be like them and because we want to see what crazy thing they're going to do next. And that character is exciting to me because she raises questions about how we enable people, why we don't speak up, how on some level we can live vicariously through these extremely charismatic people and that we take delight in seeing what kind of crazy stunt they're going to pull next. I mean, she's a survivor and she's got her eye on the prize and she's going to get there. I love her. And I think that <laughs> I do. Good. Well, when I read it, something that jumped out at me as a similarity with the new Colossus, your adaptation of The Seagull, which that play is very much about the cult of personality and celebrity culture. And I saw that as well in Master Builder. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about these, you know, home and garden shows and while you were out and people wanting their homes to look like a magazine, you know, and we build those people up too. They're just, they're celebrities. Mm -hmm. You can read about them in gossip magazines. So I, I, I thought that was an interesting parallel, you know, in both of your pieces. Also, For me, thinking about Sully, clearly I'm projecting myself onto her (laughs) in this instance, but, you know, I think an unconscious fear that I had when I was going to sort of put myself out there in a bigger way and take these creative chances was that everyone was going to laugh at me or, or like actively want me to fail. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's how the people around Sully are behaving. Mm. And luckily for me, I actually had the realization that that isn't my life. Um, People around me want me to succeed. But I think Sully, you know, how much agency does Sully have with the the relationship she has with these people? Mm -hmm. Did she have to sacrifice her marriage in order to be a success? What compromises did she make that the people around her didn't agree with or, Mm -hmm. you know, as her star rose, you know, do people just want to take her down? I'm so excited to see Dana Marks um, open the show as Sully. She's just an amazing actor. And with Kevin's wonderful direction and framing of the script, I just feel like it's going to be funhouse. And that leads me to thinking about the very opening scene mm-hmm. where in your version, <laughs> it's a talk show. Right. And this did not exist in <laughs> Ibsen's version. And, you know, th- also that there are some characters that actually had lines in Ibsen's version and they are not in your version of the script. They might mm-hmm. be referenced or they might not be in it altogether. And mm-hmm. and you also added this new character of the, t- the talk show host. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, did you have to give yourself permission or how did you come to say, hey, I'm just going to mess with this classic and make it my own? Because you talked about um, more of a need to make this one contemporary Mm -hmm. as opposed to The Seagull, which a few tweaks of The Seagull and we're right here today. Um, But this one, you know, especially when I read them back to back, I was like, wow, Tamara really, really went for it. And that really impressed me because I feel like 
I would be so hesitant to mess with a classic. It's like, well, you have to have the same structure and you have to have the same people. But, you know, you really seem to allow yourself the freedom to do whatever you needed to do. I was very hesitant to do that with the new classes because it was my first solo run as a playwright. I have written collaboratively with a lot of people over the years and written as a as a co-writer for many years with um, my friend Cheryl Shambly, but this was my first go at it, just with me, with my name on the on the script. So I don't think I took as many chances as I could have. But with Master Builder, I really wanted to push myself to just take it as far as I wanted to go. I did want to increase the number of women roles in the script and I wanted to cut out people that I th- thought were unnecessary. So I cut out the character of the son and works mm-hmm. at the architecture firm. And he's mentioned many times, but he's never on stage. I added in um, a female client. The talk show that you're talking about, originally that, that role was written for a woman. It's played by, by Jaybird Oberski, but I wanted to have more women on stage. But I had to figure out how to handle a whole bunch of exposition. As you mentioned, Ibsen's really wordy, and a lot of that is exposition. And I have a problem with exposition, not only Mm -hmm. writing it, like I don't write it well, but when I'm in the audience and I'm listening to it, I start thinking, oh, here's the (laughs) – Here's where we tell the audience all the information that they need in order to understand what's going to come next. And so I think exposition is really problematic. So I needed a way to do that, and the talk show was one way to do that. And I don't know if it works or not, but it is a way to basically describe to the audience, like, all this stuff is happening, and this is who this is, and it sets up a framework, and then it gives it a nice um, way to bookend it and kind of do the same thing at the end when we come back to the talk show. Let's talk about the relationship between Sully and Hildy. Whoa. So interesting. And, you know, I'm right there with you that seeing... You know, in the original version, in Ibsen's version, it's an older man with this like Lolita character, like I'm gag. I've seen it a million times. It's old and tired and it's not interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think you could have taken it in a direction where there's a sexual tension between Sully and Hildy that I didn't really read that in the script. You know, we'll see what it looks like when I see it performed. Mm -hmm. And also such an interesting choice that it's written there in the description of Hildy. He wears a pair of battered angel wings Mm -hmm. or fairy wings Mm -hmm. or tell me (laughs) what is going on with Sully and Hildy. What I did want to do is repurpose that relationship and transform it into something different I wanted to remove that erotic or potentially romantic relationship between the two of them at this point in time in the play. And what I've written, Hildy is more of a man-child who's essentially looking for his family and his home, and he's looking to Sully to provide that and to her husband Lionel to provide that, and they aren't interested in providing that. So... That is a very different dynamic than Ibsen originally wrote. The wings have to do a lot with my interest and obsession with wings in both plays, Uh, this idea of birds 
for some reasons, butterflies, things that fly, I think is continues to be something that comes up for me as a writer. And I don't know why I haven't unpacked that <laughs> yet fully. Maybe I should. <laughs> I think that these characters in my version of Master Builder really do want to fly. They want to soar and there are various things that are stopping them from leaving the ground and from finding that kind of freedom and liberation. And the character of Hildy has come up with his own way of doing that. And that is to have this talisman, uh, this this token of the wings. And he thinks that that keeps him safe and enables him to fly away. And then towards the end of the play, Sully tries that too. So I think that Hildy and Sully in some ways are versions of the same person. They both come from similar backgrounds. They're both survivors. Hildy just doesn't have the skills and doesn't quite have the same teeth that Sully does. I recently heard an interview with ta Coates where he talked about his experience as a young writer where he knew what he wanted to sound like but he didn't have the skill or the experience to get there yet. And it really was a process for him writing his first book and getting older and having more life experience. He felt like he didn't really start to write the way he wanted to until he wrote Between the World and Me. And you have talked to me about your experience with Master Builder being a time where you really felt like you could feel your voice coming through in a way that you hadn't noticed before. Finding your voice as an artist is terrifying and also really life-giving. Realizing that I wrote in a way that felt natural to me, that I wasn't editing myself, trying to sound like somebody else, that I wasn't thinking, oh, what are people going to think that these words came out of my brain? Are they going to judge me that I wrote this kind of story? And doing all of those kind of self-editing things that we do to kind of be the artist we think other people want us to be rather than the artist that we are. And I'm not talking about improving ourselves, which is like a whole other kind of conversation, but I'm talking about holding back that kind of expression that feels really organic in order to be something you think other people want you to be. Being able to not do that is everything. It's like having a you know volcano in your body. I don't know. I'm still really sorting through how I feel about it because when I when I made that realization, it I hadn't realized it until right before rehearsal started when we were at the first read through in this rehearsal process. I keep going back to this word terrifying, but that's what it really felt like because I felt so vulnerable and I felt so exposed and I had to figure out how to get okay with that and transform that into a victory rather than feeling the burden of being seen. Because I think when you write with your own voice, it can very quickly feel like people are judging you, not what you're making. There's a fear, at least for me, that people won't understand that, well, I, I am getting better and I will get better. You, you know what I mean? It's like, this is not the final me. This is one step in the direction of fully realizing my voice. But it is a clear step 
And then, you know, I felt a lot better recently because I went to rehearsal today and I was talking to Kevin, the director, and Dana, and I told them how relieved I felt seeing what they were doing and how excited I am that this has become such a collaborative process. I mean, the the beautiful thing about doing an adaptation is that I felt like I was collaborating with Ibsen and Chekhov kind of from the beginning because I was using their framework and their masters. And so I had a partner that I was writing with in a sense. But basically, I did everything that I could do with the play. And then I gave it over and hoped that other people will fix it. We'll, we'll take what I made and make it better. And Kevin was talking about theater as an additive process, about people add in their things to make it better. And I don't have to be the director of this piece. I don't have to think about how this piece will stay, be staged. I don't have to think about how Dana or Thaddeus or Rebecca or anybody is going to make these characters come alive because that's their job and I trust that they will make it better. And so I know that they're great at what they do. And I know that that whatever shortfalls I have as a playwright, they're going to shore up so that then I can fold those things into the next draft. What I'm saying is that my voice then becomes our voice, which is really what I'm most interested in the end in any way. I'm not interested in, you know, this is Tamara Kassane's show. I'm interested in contributing my piece having other people contribute their piece, and then making something together. And that's what excites me. I noticed that Little Green Pig has gone, you know, very unconventional with it. Not all Norwegian cast. <laughs> so, and I'm wondering... Can we find an all Norwegian cast? <laughs> well, I'll raise my hand as that is part of my heritage. However, so I'm wondering if that comes from... There's a character description um, on the you know, one of the very first pages of the of the play, and it includes the following note, please cast a diverse group of actors. So for you as a playwright, did you have, you know, race or ethnicity or, you know, gender identity, any of those things in mind for any specific characters? And does it change the way that you write write those characters? I did not have anything in mind for those characters other than designated gender. And then a couple of those got changed anyway. I wrote the phrase that you mentioned, please cast a diverse group of actors into the script because I feel like people have, well, people make assumptions about what it means to put up a classic. People might even choose certain actors that fit this idea of what uh, a traditional casting of an Ibsen play would be. Putting that in the, in the script was a way of signaling to people that that's not what I would like to happen. As a playwright, I feel like I come from a certain perspective and I am bound by my own experiences and privileges and I write with a certain voice. I write from a certain perspective that might be more limited than I want it to be. It only benefits me to have the widest representation of people on stage as I can possibly get because I feel like that adds a depth to the play that I might not provide because of my limited range. 
for the new Colossus and also for Master Builder, what inevitably happens is that the ultimate draft of what the play is, is influenced by the actors who are in the roles. People will say things slightly differently. They'll add their own voice. It just adds so much more dimension to the work. You had talked a little bit about how writing, particularly this play, really fit in with your life as it was when you had a newborn and a, a very young child. Um, but you, you're also an actor. And could you talk a little bit about actor Tamara versus <laughs> writer Tamara, you know, and, and how the different, these different strands of art making, maybe they feed different parts of you or, you know, need to be in focus at different times, you know, is one more natural mm. or, you know, something that feels necessary at a given point in time. Writing is much is much easier to accommodate in my current lifestyle because I can do it at home at midnight after the kids are asleep or at six o'clock in the morning or in little bits and pieces over six months or eight months working on the same project. At this point, it's hard for me to do more than one show as an actor in a year because I can't devote, you know, whatever, six, eight, mm -hmm. 12 weeks to that kind of a rehearsal process. I find the playwriting to be lonely and I miss that collaborative spirit that comes in the rehearsal room, which is why when we went into rehearsal for Master Builder, I was so eager to be there and to feel like I'm a part of something because <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that's really important to me. And that kind of exposure helps me to expand my mind about what a you know what theater can be and so I really need to be in the mix with people I think that now because I'm doing more playwriting um, by myself I think when I act in a piece I'm a little bit more attentive to what the playwright might want from me as an actor so I spend just a little bit more time thinking you know, why did she write a question and then put a period at the end of the sentence rather than a question mark or why does she repeat this word a couple of times because I make the assumption that the playwright did that on purpose and I try to be a little bit more thoughtful about the intentions of the playwright in a way that I probably didn't before. As a playwright, I try to write parts that I think would be fun to act in. I hope I do that. And I feel like as a writer, I also have access to more types of characters that I can inhabit, at least in my mind. There are only certain kinds of parts that I can play as an actor in my physical form. And even if we do all sorts of fun things and cast me in roles that you wouldn't normally cast me in, that I think that can only be taken so far. But I can sit down and write those characters and I can sort of live those lives in a really interesting way. It gets, kind of gives me access to other characters that I can play. But I don't really know what the future will bring as far. I hope that I don't ever have to choose one over the other, the writing or the acting. They both really fill different needs. I mean, there's really nothing like being on stage and ending a show and feeling that you were seen and people watched you work up there. Hopefully there's applause at the end. That feels very different than sitting in the audience and watching other people do a play that you've written, which is amazing and excruciating and all of that. And 
It's a lot about losing, you know, letting go of control. So they're re- they feel really different. They're both very nourishing, but they kind of check different boxes. I'd like to talk about artist soapbox more broadly. Um, I've been so fortunate to have been sort of part of artist soapbox from the very beginning and watched how it's grown. Uh, the different people you've talked to in the past few months from all different sectors, things that I didn't even know existed in our community, like applied art. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And I, you know, I just, I love to learn new things and learn about, you know, other people who are, who are doing this locally. Could you talk a little bit about your aspirations for Artist Soapbox and, you know, including the podcast and beyond? My aspirations for the podcast really have to do with investing at a local level, and I I'm essentially doubling down on local because I feel like we as a society are so obsessed with these famous people, uh, movie stars and pop stars and artists who live around the world from us, who live in places that we aren't, who we're never going to connect with other than watching them make work on the big screen or read about them in people And that's wonderful, and their work is wonderful, and I'm not trying to take away from that. But we also have people here who are actually accessible. You could run into them at a diner. You could run into them at the Target, and you could have a conversation with them, and they're making great art. And I feel like in order for us to really thrive as a community, we need to invest in those connections between artists and artists and artists and audience and community members and really, as I said, double down on that local investment. And that is what, for me, the podcast is. It's me. It's my investment in this area and saying, you know, we have all of these opportunities here. Let's share our resources. Let's talk to one another. Let's stop the siloing that's happening between different artistic mediums and really do this together. And I think the only way that we're going to do that is to learn about one another and have the conversations. And I'm I'm more interested in the process and in the people and in the way of making work than I am ultimately in the product as far as the way that I talk about the work. I definitely have opinions and the way that it, you know, the ultimate production, but my interest right now is in talking about what happens before that and what people want to have happen down the road. I'm really grateful for the critics in the community because I think without those folks, there might not be any conversation Mm -hmm. about the art that's happening. So I don't want those folks to go away at all. But my task with the podcast is to just increase conversation because nobody has any time to do that. We're all so busy. We can't Mm -hmm. even talk to each other. I mean, I've had people on this podcast I've known for a decade And in our 40-minute conversation, I've learned things about folks I did not know. So if I don't know it, then I bet you that, you know, my neighbor down the street doesn't know it. We should know this about each other. I think it only makes what we do more relevant. My aspiration is that other people, or my hope, is that other people will become as invested in this as I am and share it with one another and get excited about it and see the value of it. Because for artists, it's, you know, 40 minutes to talk about your work 
in the way that you want to talk about it. Who gets that opportunity? We just don't. And so it's an incredible time to really reflect on what you're making, how you feel about it, what you'd like to do, who you'd like to work with and put that out into the world. And it's also a way for other people to access art that they might not have access to. So my friend in California and my friend in Canada, she's not here. She wants to hear what's going on. She wants to know what I'm doing and my friends are doing. And the podcasts are a way for those people, the stay-at-home parents who can't get to shows, the actors who are in rehearsal and they can't actually go to anything. It's to, it's a way to um, promote accessibility to those people because they should still be allowed to participate in the conversation, to still know what's going on. You offer creative coaching. Could you tell us a little bit about that and who you've worked with and what that process is like? Creative coaching is something that I did in partnership with my friend Cheryl Shambly some years ago, and we worked with several people who were working on their own solo shows, helping them get through that process and then ultimately produce that work. I'm interested in working with creators who need or would like to have a creative coach or companion or witness or taskmaster or cheerleader, whatever that particular person needs. This kind of coaching is particularly helpful for creators who are making original work, um, whether that's for their own personal enjoyment or for public consumption. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, but that practice of making your own work can be um, disorienting and it's easy to quit, and there are many roadblocks, and so it's often nice to have someone to walk through that uh, with you. I've been through that process many times. I've helped other people navigate it, and I hope that I have some insight into how to get from one end to the other. In the podcast episode with Nicola Bullock, which I believe is episode 15, we talk a little bit about that and how that went for her. Um, and if people have questions, they can just reach out to me via the Artist Soapbox email, which is artistsoapbox at gmail.com. But it's a very low stress experience that can be tailored to an individual. With Nicola, we did a lot of emailing, um, but I also meet people face to face. I've had phone conversations, I've done Skyping. So it, it depends on the needs of the person. You've got a world premiere just around the corner. Mm -hmm. What's next? Master Builder opens on January 18th, and a month after that, I'm going to be in a show at Man Bites Dog called The Moors, and it's directed by Jules Odendahl-James, and I'm really excited about that piece and also nervous about it. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it's requiring me to stretch, and that's always a <laughs> strange experience. So that is happening, and... Then, Mara, you and I are going to be putting together a creative accountability group for women artists in the spring. I'm looking forward to that. I'm working on my next script that I have a deadline set for the summer, and I set that deadline specifically to try and light a fire under my tail to get this piece done, and that is... Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if I can crank that out because it's it's original. It's not based on an adaptation. So I have to figure out how to 
draw a map for myself. I don't have Ibsen. I don't have Chekhov to help me figure that out. So it's a little bit of writing without a compass. And I hope I can, I hope I can do it. We'll see. I'm excited about it. I'm inspired to do it, but it's, you know, going to take a little bit of stick to and the podcast. And then um, I'm working with a group of women on some children's shows. Uh, the group is called the Curious Theater Collective, and we've written one play for elementary school kids, and then we're going to be working on our second one later this year. And that is a really interesting exercise because it's uh, essentially collaborative writing, which is really fun and and a different way of, of writing for me. So that's what's coming up. Tamara, thank you for this experiment, this like take your daughter to work version <laughs> of <laughs> Artist Soapbox. It's been my pleasure to be here with you. And thanks for trusting me to be on this side of the microphone. Thank you so much. Artist Soapbox is a listener supported podcast. You can support us via our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash artist soapbox. For more information about today's episode and more, go to artistsoapbox.org. And we're out.